1927, Time Magazine named its first Man of the Year, Charles Lindbergh. At age 25, he was given this honor after becoming an American hero by doing what no man had been able to do before. He completed the first non-stop flight across the Atlantic from New York to Paris, France, becoming a household name. The flight took him just over 33 hours in his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis. What was his motivation, though? After all, six men had already tried and died making the same attempt. It was likely the $25,000 cash prize that was offered, but I suspect it was more to it than that. It could have been the bragging rights that such an accomplishment would deliver, but even Charles likely never imagined the extent of notoriety that would be given to someone who succeeded, and succeed he did. On May 21, 1927, after arriving in Paris and circling the Eiffel Tower, he landed and was greeted by over 150,000 onlookers. He was pulled from the plane by the crowd and carried over their heads like a yuppie crowd surfing at a concert. He returned to the U.S. and was honored with a huge parade followed by banquets, ceremonies, and even awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor by President Calvin Coolidge. He became known as Lucky Lindy and the Lone Eagle. Songs were written about him. Towns, streets, schools, and even train stations were named after him. And some folks say that the Lindy Hop Dance was a reference to his hop across the Atlantic. His notoriety is not in debate. But in the coming years after his biggest accomplishment, there'd be a great tragedy, an infamous investigation and eventually suspicion cast on his hero status, as the crime of the century horrified the nation. My sources for today's episode come from The Case That Never Dies, a book by Lloyd Garner, Britannica.com, two videos from YouTube, which I will post in the show's notes, and History.com. The disclaimer is that this does deal with crimes committed against a child, and at one point it can get a little graphic. So, Darlene, did you learn about Charles Lindbergh in school? No. I think he's a political figure. Well, he's not. His dad actually was a congressman. Okay. But he's famous in his own right. Okay. So I learned about him in school, but the story I'm going to tell you today was not something I learned in school. All right. The famous Charles Lindbergh and his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, were married on May 27, 1929, just two years after he became the first man to make a nonstop flight across the Atlantic. Okay, so he was a pilot. He was. Very well known in aviation circles. All right. After Charles had reached hero status with his famous flight, plenty of endorsement deals and business offers were coming his way. So he became wealthy pretty quickly. Okay. Basking in his fame and starting his new life as a newlywed in a prominent New Jersey family was satisfying for Charles. He and Anne spent their time between their Eaglewood, New Jersey home, an apartment in Manhattan, and sometimes her family home. Now, her father was a J.P. Morgan. Okay. Top dog. I've definitely heard of J.P. Morgan. 
So they were already, they were wealthy as well. Just over a year from the wedding, their firstborn son and his namesake, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., was born on June 22nd, 1930. I'm sure Charles and Anne were over the moon with little Charlie, or the little eaglet, as he was affectionately called. After that, they hired a nurse to be his nanny. Her name was Betty Gow. Now, the Great Depression had just started around this time. Okay. And times were really tough for families all across the nation. However, the Lindberghs, they didn't really seem too affected by financial woes. As we've already established, Anne's father was a prominent banker. Right. And Charles had gotten rich really quick after his famous flight and all the endorsement deals and so forth and speaking engagements, the whole thing. So they weren't really hurting for money and they were actually building a second home. Oh, okay. So, so they, yeah, they weren't. Not hurting for money. They weren't suffering. Specifically, uh, they had just built a home in the Sourland Mountains in New Jersey. Charles had wanted land in which he could build an airplane hangar and mm-hmm. an airstrip for his plane. And he had found the perfect spot. That takes a lot of land, so. Yes. A lot of money, too. Yes. The home was built near Hopewell, New Jersey. And it wasn't quite completed, but they were spending their weekends out there now. They called this home Highfields. Charles and Anne were spending their weekends there. And though Anne usually didn't take care uh, of the baby by herself, she had the nurse's help. When they went to the home in Highfields, they usually went alone. Yeah. She wanted to bond with the baby away from the nurse. Sure. And they wanted probably their private family time. Right. She had done some traveling earlier with Charles, and so she had not spent a lot of time with the baby early on, and he was very attached to his nurse. Mm, and so she was she, feeling a little jealous. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and she wanted the baby to become more acquainted with her. Yeah, I get that. She actually told the nanny, I want him to call for his mommy when he needs something and not his nurse. Oh, okay. I'm sure a lot of working moms probably feel that way. I'm sure you know, with their yes. babies and caretakers. I get that. I know I did when my first uh, was at daycare and then with a babysitter. And I felt like I was missing all those first things. Sure. First steps and all of that. On February 27th, 1932, while at the new home in Hopewell, Charlie had come down with a cold and Anne was coming down with a cold as well. And she was pretty tired from caring for him. So she wanted his nursemaid, Betty Gal, to come out to Highfields and help her care for him. This might sound like hashtag rich people problems. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I got a cold. I need somebody to help me care for the baby. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) But in her defense, she actually was pregnant, expecting their second child. And you know how exhausting it is in the early days of pregnancy. Yes. So we don't always have the luxury of having a nurse. But boy, I sure wish I did. Mm Mm-hmm. But Anne did have that. And so instead of returning home on Sunday night, like they usually did, they decided to stay at the house a few more nights while they recovered. Okay. So she just called Betty to come down to Highfields or come up to Highfields and stay with them to help out while they stayed at the new house. So she called on Tuesday morning and requested her to come out. And they sent a chauffeur with a car to pick Betty up and bring her out. It had the weather was kind of nasty. Normally, Betty could have taken a cab or whatever, but the weather was kind of nasty and rainy, cold. And so they just sent the car to pick her up. Okay. She arrived in the afternoon, and by then the weather had begun to clear somewhat. She immediately began caring for Charlie. And so Anne took a walk around the property now that the sun had come out for a little while. Charlie played for a bit and then was taken inside for his dinner. After dinner around 6 p.m., Betty and his mother started getting him ready for bed. 
if you're a parent, you know that ritual can take a while. Oh, yeah. So you probably involved, you know, reading a story and getting a bath and putting on pajamas and all of that stuff. The nurse went around the room, closing the windows and the shutters. One of the windows had a warped shutter and it couldn't be bolted with the slide. And then they left one window half open for ventilation, but that shutter was latched on the inside. Even though it was half open, the shutter was latched. Okay. However, the wind was picking up and a screen was put up near the crib to block out any drafts. Because remember, he had a cold. Yeah. And then Anne left the room and Betty was left to secure Charlie's thumb guards. Thumb guards. Do you know what those are? No. I didn't either. I had to look it up. It's like a torture device. <laughs> it seemed like it to me. So it was something they would attach to the baby's thumbs. Mm-hmm. They put it on the thumbs. It's got some wires and straps that attach to the baby's sleeping suit. Okay. That allows them to move their arms, but they can't move them up far enough to get their thumb in their mouth. Poor babies. I know, because that's their comfort measure. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I may have a little more sympathy because I was a thumb sucker. Uh, I had two thumb suckers as well. My sister needed one of those th- <laughs> some of those thumb guards. That is terrible, though. Yeah, because you know, that is their comfort measure. Yeah, it's like soothing. I felt bad for the baby when I read that. I know that my parents used to put this bitter taste and stuff. They would paint it on my thumb to keep me from putting my thumb in my mouth. And then I I would try to wash it off. It didn't wash off. But if I sucked my thumb long enough, it would come (laughs) off. And I would do that. And then I would take it out and cry because it was horrible. And then I'd suck it again and cry. And I'm still traumatized, obviously, from that. Well, I feel like everybody's babies always sucked their thumbs or had passies. And I just thought that was the cutest thing. So I would try to make my kids. I would (laughs) stick their thumbs in their mouths and I would give them pat. And they would not. They just were not. It's because I wanted them. Yes. Rebellion at an early age. (laughs) They started young. And now they probably all have beautiful teeth. Yes. Once all of this was done... And Charlie was put to bed. It was around 7.30 p.m. Lindbergh had strict rules for the baby to be put to bed around 7, and no one was to enter the nursery again before 10 p.m. At that time, they would check on him one last time, take him to the bathroom, give him a snack, and his vitamins. I did think it was weird that they took a 20-month-old to the bathroom. My great. I guess they were establishing like a routine or something. Possibly. And maybe maybe they were hoping to potty train him early because they did have another baby coming. Right. I mean, surely he wasn't going. I wouldn't think. Nurse made Betty after she got him down. She spent some time cleaning up some of his clothes, washing up in the bathroom. She went back in, verified he was asleep by eight. And then she went downstairs to have dinner with the caretakers, Ollie and Elsie Waitley. One thing I wanted to note, too, here is that Lindbergh was known to be really strict with his children. So that 7 to 10 window when he couldn't, nobody could go in. It makes me wonder if, like, if the baby woke up and wanted its mommy or something, it would just have to cry itself back to sleep. I think that was common. Like, they just weren't. I don't think they believed in a lot of, like, sentimental, you know, being very sentimental. Yeah. Or emotionally. Right. But I'm just like, you know, the baby can't suck his thumb. Nobody can come in and hold him. It just makes me sad. I don't like that. At around 825 that evening, she heard Charles, whom Betty referred to as the colonel. Okay. He was a colonel. He had been a colonel. Okay. She heard him arrive at the house around 825, park in the garage, and come in through the kitchen. Later, the Lindberghs had their dinner. And they retired to the living room around 9 p.m. He heard a loud noise, which was described as sounding like a wooden crate falling off of a chair in the kitchen. 
something like that. And he asked, what was that? But Anne, she didn't know. She had not even heard it. Soon after that, he and Anne went upstairs to draw their baths. And then later that evening, around 9.30, Charles returned downstairs to work in the library. At nearly 10 o'clock, Betty went to check on the baby, according to that normal routine. She and Anne usually did that together. On this night, Anne was still in the bath, and Betty went into the bathroom to turn on a heater before entering the nursery. She didn't turn on the lights. She didn't want to wake the baby up. But she opened the door just enough to light the room so she could see to go close that window. Okay. The one that they had left half open. So she went to the crib, but she didn't really hear him breathing, and it was kind of strangely quiet. So she felt around in the crib for him, and she realized he was not in the crib. She ran to Anne and inquired if she had the baby. Oh, goodness. Anne did not. She ran downstairs to the colonel and asked him, Do you have the baby? Please don't fool me. And he asked, Isn't he in his crib? And once he realized, no, indeed, little Charlie was not in the crib, he immediately ran upstairs to check for himself. Then he ran to get his rifle from his closet and remarked to Anne, They've stolen our baby. That's a, uh, that's a strange response to me. It does sound a little odd, but I will mm-hmm. say one thing that could have prompted that. For one thing, because it was the Depression and people were having money troubles and the, the mobsters and the gangs were kind of really big then, it was not unusual for kidnappings for ransom to be happening during that time. Prior to that, one of Anne's sisters, there had been a threat against her life, a kidnapping for ransom. Okay. So maybe that was in his mind. But I feel like I would have asked like some of the other people in the house, like the caretakers, you know? Right. It is. I agree that it does sound a little odd. The other comment, when she said, please don't fool me, some Mm -hmm. people thought that was odd. I didn't find it too odd because if if somebody tells me something alarming, I would be like, stop. You're kidding. You're kidding. Don't joke with me or like, nuh-uh, that kind of thing. Say you swear. That's what I would say. (laughs) So that's kind of how I attributed that. But it turns out there was another reason Betty had said, please don't fool me. Charles Lindbergh apparently was a known prankster. Sometime prior to this, with a different nanny they had had before Betty, he had actually hidden the baby. As a prank, one time took the baby and put him in a closet, and he left him there for over 20 minutes. What? While everyone in the house was desperately panicking, trying to find the baby, including his mother and all the servants. Oh, my goodness. And then he produced the baby and thought that was a funny prank. I have two thoughts. First of all, how was the baby quiet in a closet for that long? I mean, he must have really had some control over that baby. Um, Was he in there in the closet with the baby? No. That's crazy. And then the other thing is, who thinks that's funny? Who thinks that's funny? If I was his wife, I would have been living. Yes. Like, oh my no, goodness. you don't prank a mom like that. My husband will do some, he, he'll do some bad jokes, but not that. Not with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking you don't mess with a mom and her baby. No, right. And for that matter, the nursemaid who's responsible for the care of your child. Why Seriously. Would, that would be funny. That's not funny. Yeah. So at this time, everybody had begun to search the house. They fetched the caretaker and his wife. Everybody's helping with the search. And after going from top to bottom of the whole house, they figured out, well, the baby is missing. Once Charles returned to the nursery, he noticed a letter on the windowsill mm-hmm. that had nobody had noticed before. Instead of ripping it open right away, as most people would have done, I would have grabbed it immediately. Oh, yeah. He said, nobody touch it until police are called. Oh, that was actually smart. 
So he summoned the police, and then he summoned his lawyer. That's who, weird. Yeah. His lawyer was a close family friend. His name okay. was Colonel Henry Breckenridge, and he did come down from New York and help assist. Okay. And that could be another one of those rich people things. Like Perhaps it was. Lawyer, you know. Yes. Call my attorney. Right. Lindbergh quickly assumed control of the situation. He ordered everyone not to walk around the house okay. or go into the nursery until after police had arrived in order to not disturb any evidence. Okay, wow. He was he really, um, he was able to think logically because I bet that mom was frantic. I'm sure. Once the police arrived and began searching, they found evidence of a ladder that had been placed against the house to the right of the library and the nursery window, as well mm-hmm. as footprints in the mud leading up to the ladder. It is odd that they did this, that they did this at that time and not in the, you know, when everybody was home and not in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep or when, I don't know, yeah. the mo- just the mom and the, I don't know. It just seems like a weird time. That becomes a question later on in this case. Okay. Police also spotted a broken section of a ladder about 75 feet away. There had been an extension ladder that it looks like it had been homemade. That was the ladder they found, and they found pieces of that broken off. Yeah. They had to have known that the baby was in the room that... Oh, that that whoever took the baby Whoever took the baby. Yeah, sorry. Had to have known. Officers determined that one of the footprints they found was definitely made by a man's shoe, and one was made by a woman's foot. Maybe a stockinged foot is what they thought. Mm. Later investigation revealed that the woman's print had been made by Anne the mom herself, the day before when she had taken that walk around the house. Two more sets of fresh footprints were discovered in an area about 90 feet from the house, leading to the edge of the woods. So authorities began to form an idea of what they thought took place. They believed there were at least two kidnappers that had parked as close to the house as possible without being seen. Then two of them had gotten out and walked to the house with that three-piece handmade extension ladder in order to gain entry to the nursery. So far, that was their work in theory. Meanwhile, in the, in the nursery, one of the officers collected the ransom letter, which had no name or any markings on the outside of the envelope. They opened it and it read, Dear Sir! Exclamation point, have 50000 ready, 25000 in $20 bills, 15000 in $10 bills, and 10000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police. The child is in gut care. Indication for all letters are signature, symbol, and three holes. Okay, did you say gut care? (laughs) Yes. Okay. That symbol with three interlocking circles had a solid red center, wavy vertical lines, and three perforated holes. And the letter was filled with spelling and grammatical errors and words like you said, gut care. Okay. Which led authorities to suspect that it was written by someone whose first language was not English. Right. It did not take long for the media to catch wind of the story, and it blew up from there. Police, reporters, and curious onlookers converged on high fields, therefore destroying valuable clues in the mud. Unfortunately... Before the key piece of evidence, that ladder, could be taken inside, it too had been contaminated by all of the many people traipsing around on the scene. Oh my goodness. And they were going against the kidnappers 
mm-hmm. demands not to have the media or the police involved. Yes. Right? Yes. So that was the good catch. The investigation was really a mess. On one hand, Charles had taken control. Yeah. He was leading the charge, trying not to let the evidence get destroyed. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it seemed that he was doing everything wrong. For instance, just like you said, where that letter said, don't get police or the public involved, he had already let it be known and become very public and had obviously contacted police. However, he had not even opened that letter. Right. So he didn't know. Until authorities arrived. And the media caught on to stuff like that really quick. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially if, like, once that police call was made. Yes. One person in the department leaked it to somebody else. Right. It would spread like wildfire. So although he had tried to keep evidence from being destroyed early on, so many people had been going through there that almost all of it was compromised and a lot of it destroyed. Remember the thumb guards we talked about? Yes. Okay, so one of those thumb guards would be found in the driveway a good distance from the house, almost at the highway, but in the opposite direction from where they supposed the kidnappers had fled. The other thumb guard was never found. And during the trial, Anne's testimony was that on that evening, she never had seen it on the baby. She testified she had not seen Betty put it on that evening either. But she had left the nursery before Betty had finished laying the baby down. Right. When New Jersey Governor Harry Moore caught wind of what had happened, he immediately offered a $25,000 reward to help catch the kidnappers and get the baby back. And just as quickly, Lindbergh demanded that he resend that offer because it was risking the child's life. Okay. The scene was a media circus. Psychics came out of the woodwork. Oh, of course they did. They always do. Yeah, claiming to know the whereabouts of the child. Mm -hmm. The FBI offered help. Right now, the the case is being worked by the New Jersey police. Do you think they offered help because it was the Lindberghs? Probably. I would imagine so. And I mean, it's going to obviously be a high-profile case. Sure. Military colonels were offered to help, were offering to help. Okay. Seemed everybody wanted to offer their services. Even Al Capone offered Ooh, to help. Okay. I'll talk about him in a little bit. Many theories were thrown around about how it could have happened, and so many questions were raised with each new idea. For every theory or fact about this case, there seems to be alternative fact that negates it. Everyone became a suspect, except the family itself. Like the mom and dad. Right. Okay. But of course, all of the caretakers yeah. and people were. I mean, I can see that, especially given that you'd think somebody would have to know. Well, they would have to know where the baby mm-hmm. was and even that they were going to be there. Right. That- it seemed very possible that that could be an inside job. Mm-hmm. And that's where they started. Like you just said, very few people even knew the Lindberghs were at Highfields that night because they didn't usually stay during the week. So that was limited knowledge, and it was a last-minute decision not to go back home. Also, how could any outsider have known about the one window with a broken shutter inside that wouldn't latch? Because they wouldn't have been able to have gotten in any other way. And you couldn't tell that from the outside. And which window in particular was the nursery? And like you said, what time the baby would be in there unattended? Yeah. I think you mentioned, why would they have come when, like, people were up and all that? All of those things were also suspicious to authorities. I don't think that could be a coincidence, personally. And why had no one seen the ransom note the first time when everybody was in the room looking for the baby? The ransom note was not seen. Do you think they were so frantic, though? That's a possible explanation. 
Because I think I would be looking for the baby. Yeah. But it, but know? if you're looking all around the room, wouldn't a note propped up on the window be a little... Yeah. Don't you think it'd be obvious? Yeah. Then Especially again, if you're looking out the window because you're noticing, okay. Yeah. So I I'm not really sure, but that is mm-hmm. a question that people have. Sure. And uh, Charles found that note after he came back to the room a second time. And that time he was by himself. Okay. Those are just a few of the questions that have been brought up. And even to this day, a lot of the questions still remain. They don't have plausible answers. So it definitely makes sense that this could have been an inside job. And oh, yeah. Likely was. Of course, they're going to question Betty, the Waitley, sure. the caretakers. And there was actually one other woman who was questioned. She was not at Highfields that evening. She was a maid for Anne's parents. Violet Sharp was the maid. Sometimes she had the responsibility of the baby every now and then. All right. So she was also questioned since she had done that. Yeah. But let's just start at the beginning and knock off some of these suspects. The first one is Betty Gow, the nursemaid. Yeah. People felt like she had the most inside knowledge of anything. Right. So her boyfriend by the name of Red Johnson, they were questioned. Now, I want to say when she was questioned personally, Lindbergh kind of shut that down. He was not suspicious of her, and he didn't really want her questioned. But her boyfriend was picked up and questioned and actually physically abused Mm. during that questioning. Okay. They thought he very well could have had something to do with it. But he did seem to have an alibi that night because he was not actually in the vicinity of Highfields. He had been visiting his brother in Connecticut. So the authorities were not able to get any information from him that was helpful. But instead of just letting him go, they kept him detained And then eventually deported him back to Norway because he was here as an illegal immigrant. Okay. Betty also eventually left the country and went back to her home country of Scotland and then returned to the U.S. to um, testify during the trial. The Waitleys, Ollie and his wife. Right. They were questioned somewhat before Lindbergh shut it down and they had plausible stories and they they were kind of ruled out. Okay. And then Violet Sharp, the one we just talked about. Yeah. And that's her parents. That's the mother's parents' maid. Yes. Okay. Okay. Anne quickly became a suspect. Investigators believed that she may have acted as an agent to the kidnappers, giving them information that they needed to make that snatch. And that Anne is the, she's the baby's caretaker. Violet. Violet. Okay. And she didn't help her case any when she, or the suspicion on her, when they questioned her, she was not very forthcoming. She was a little snappish, coy, and she lied about where she was. Oh, really? And who she was with. Hmm. Now, as later on, it comes out that she was hiding other things about her life, like some sexual affairs that she was having. And that's why she lied. So she didn't want that to come out. Right. It didn't look good on her reputation. Okay. However, she was questioned rather harshly. Like, was she physically? I don't think that she was physically accosted during that investigation, but or probably accused. Like they were accusatory. They really think she had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. They used, you know, kind of harsh techniques and kept coming back and questioning her. On the last time that they were going to question her, they were going back to where she was staying at mm-hmm. the Morrow's household, and so she delayed coming down. She didn't want to come down and talk to him. And finally, they went up to get her, and they found her dead in the butler's pantry from an apparent suicide by drinking poison. Wow. Just saying that sounds like I'm talking about the clue game, like in the butler's pantry with yeah, by poison or that's whatever. crazy. And it was Colonel Lindbergh himself who was the one who found the remaining cyanide in her room. 
that she didn't take. Mm. The police indicated their belief that this was the act of a guilty conscience. But her Mm. employer, Mrs. Morrow, Anne's mother, she thought otherwise. She described Violet as a shy girl with a fear of police. She felt that the heavy-handed way that Violet was treated by them is what led to her suicide. Wow. And then other possible suspects were underworld crime figures. Yeah, it was even speculated that somebody connected to organized crime had done this for the ransom. Yeah, I can see that. We said that those kidnappings by ransom for ransom was not an unusual thing. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise that Al Capone, who was at that time the top dog in Chicago. Yeah. But he was also currently in prison. He did offer his services to help get the baby back. Right. In exchange for being freed. Okay, so it wasn't really out of the kindness of his heart. He said, if you let me out, I can really help you get this baby. I can negotiate with some other mobsters. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Of course, the authorities didn't take him up on that. Mm -mm. However, his counterpart in New York, Oni Madden, Mm -hmm. owner of the Cotton Club in Harlem, he also got involved. He was hoping to get the feds off of some of his illegal activities as well. But no dice. They weren't playing with them. <laughs> However, Lindbergh himself, he did retain the services of two other crime figures, Salvatore Spitali and Irving Bitts. Okay. They were going to be the go-between for him and the mob in order to find and retain the baby. But those efforts came to nothing because the mob had not taken the baby. I just keep thinking about, like, you know, there's all these things going on in the investigation, but what the parents must be going through. You know, just not knowing where's my, I just. That's every mother's worth nightmare. It is. Oh, it's so sad. It is sad. With all these suspects, it's no wonder this has become known as the crime of the century. It seemed as if police had hit a roadblock with the investigation. But on March 6th, another ransom letter arrived in Lindbergh's mail, which raised the ransom to 70000 This letter did have the before-mentioned symbol and signature that the uh, kidnappers had indicated would be their letter. Yeah, it was hard to duplicate, so they figured people would be coming out of the woodwork trying to claim that they had done it. And so this one had their symbol. Their good friend and the lawyer, Henry Breckenridge, he also received a ransom note that week as well, bringing the tally to like three ransom notes. And in the letter sent to him, the kidnappers indicated that a man by the name of John Condon would be their intermediary between them and the kidnappers. And they were instructed to reply by newspaper, warned not to get the police involved in the negotiations. It's really weird how he became involved in the case. Okay. Apparently, he's this patriotic, pro-American He's like a retired school principal from the Bronx, and he wants to see justice happen. And he must fancy himself as some kind of an investigator. Okay. So he placed an ad in the paper to the kidnappers, offering $1,000 of his own money if the kidnappers would return the baby to a Catholic priest, no questions asked. It's interesting that a, that a school teacher in the Depression mm-hmm. would have $1,000. Yeah, he was actually a school principal. A school principal. And he was retired. And his wife later on said she doesn't know what possessed him to offer a thousand of their money to do that. I bet. So the kidnappers did see his ad and they responded to him and said, okay, you can really? be our go between. Yep. So it was the kidnappers' ideas to use him or idea to use him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he kind of became involved like out of nowhere. He started going by the code name Jaffsey. 
Mm, okay. It's weird. Fancy. <laughs> yeah. Well, reportedly, Lindbergh dubbed him that by using the initials of his names altogether. So his initials were J.F.C., John F. Condon. And so if you say that quickly, Jaffsey, J.F.C., Jaffsey. Okay. So that's how they got it. So I thought it sounded kind of like something from, I don't know, a spy novel. Yeah. Using ads placed in various papers, he would communicate with the kidnappers And eventually, he set up a meeting that was going to take place at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. That meeting was to nail down details of the exchange and the ransom. At that meeting, the mystery man, who claimed to be part of a gang of two, I'm sorry, three men and two women, he said his name was John, but it was dark. And Jaffsey said that this guy stayed in the shadows and he did not get a good look at his face. They started calling him Cemetery John. Because they met him at the cemetery. Okay. Okay. Cemetery John claimed the baby was being held on a boat right off the coast near Martha's Vineyard, a boat named the Nellie. Jaffsey wanted proof that the kidnappers actually did have the baby before he hands over the money. So it was agreed that they would send him the sleeping suit that the baby had worn. Okay. And John assured him, yes, the baby's still alive. And just a few days later, that sleeping suit did arrive in the mail, along with another ransom demand. And this time they said it has to be paid within two weeks. Mm, Okay. They didn't say, actually, they did say what else. They didn't say, or else we'll kill the baby. They said, or else it's going to go up again. Before the exchange took place, the money was placed in a custom-made wooden box and included several gold certificates. These were notes that were going to be discontinued soon. They're no longer going to be in circulation after, you know, it takes a while to get all of that out of circulation, but they're going to be, you know, retiring those. While they were not marked, the serial numbers of them were noted and taken down. And so banks were alerted to be able to watch. So they could trace them. Yes. Okay. Now, it did seem at that meeting with Cemetery John and Jaffsey that Jaffsey might have either a roundabout way, like maybe bungling it or purposefully we don't know really but it seems like he kind of alerted the cemetery john that some of those notes might be marked even though they really? were even though they weren't marked it's like he was kind of hinting around that they would be and he actually had them remove some of the more easily traceable bills out at the last minute so it's just the serial numbers it is and it's because they're gold notes i mean i don't know exactly what they look like okay. but not like the dollars we have now and okay. so it would have been like you would have seen it maybe the Maybe the writing was in gold or something. I'm not sure, but they were called gold certificates. Okay. So it would have looked different than your normal dollar. So then, okay, I gotcha. So they used those purposely so that they could be yes. easily or, okay. Yeah, it just tried. happened that they were going to be going out of distribution. And so they said, let's use these. It might okay. be easier to trace them. Yeah. Between April 1st and 2nd, the exchange took place as agreed. And Lindbergh himself went in search of the boat Nellie to find his son. Sadly, the baby was not found, and Lindbergh realized he had been duped. He did continue searching, obviously. Sure. Okay, here's my disclaimer. Okay. I'm getting ready to tell some graphic material, so just be aware this might be the part you might want to fast forward a little bit if that bothers you. A tragic development in the case occurred on May 12, 1932. A truck driver pulled off the road between Hopewell, New Jersey, and Princeton in order to relieve himself. There, he spied in the underbrush a badly decomposed small corpse. Mm. The body was face down, partly covered with dirt and leaves, and some body parts had been eaten away by animals. When police arrived, they removed a shirt from the toddler-sized body, 
took it to Highfields, and showed it to Nurse Betty Gow. She identified and confirmed that it was a nightshirt that she herself had sewn for Charlie with blue thread. This was confirmed to be the body of the little missing boy. An autopsy revealed the skull was horribly fractured by a blow to the head, Mm. leading authorities to believe that he had either been dropped during the kidnapping attempt or hit intentionally. They also determined that this had happened most likely on the night of the kidnapping. So all those ransom negotiations were never going to produce a child. Oh, that's so sad. I want to note here that John Condon, or Jaffsey, Mm -hmm. was an interesting character in this whole crazy story. He was very eccentric, and it was odd how he had come to be involved in that case to begin with. Right. And he would tell the authorities wild tales about developments in the case, and... Sometimes he would just contradict himself, and he never felt like he had to explain his contradictions. And so he became a suspect in the case just due to that odd behavior. Sure. He definitely wanted to make this case about himself Mm. for whatever reason. He was a little bit flamboyant. For instance, there's a tale that one time he was on a city bus, and he demanded the bus stop because he had seen a suspect in the Lindbergh kidnapping. And then he quickly identified himself as Jaff C., the intermediary. And he runs off the bus and he gives chase to this supposed suspect. And of course, you know, he didn't get him or anything like that. But it was almost like it was just to make himself look important. Okay. One of those. Yes. (laughs) Just wanting that glory for himself. Did the Lindberghs at this time have any, did they suspect anybody in particular? Charles seemed to believe in Condon and he believed in that he was helping them and he kept agreeing to work with him, even though he kept doing things that seemingly were hurting this case. Okay. So many people believe that Jaffsy had something to do with the kidnapping from the get-go. intentionally like sabotaging. But other people said, no, he's just this flamboyant, (laughs) vein-chasing, yeah, idiot meddler. (laughs) So now this case had come to a standstill. Mm -hmm. There are no really other leads. The FBI has stepped up to a more authoritative role, and a pamphlet was produced listing the serial number on those bills. And it was distributed to many of the businesses and banks, and people were just told to be watching in case they showed up in circulation. Finally, after about two years, a major break came in the case when an astute gas station attendant noticed a customer acting suspiciously. He decided to write down the plate number of that car on the note that the guy had paid with. Okay. When that plate number was traced, it led to a German immigrant living in the Bronx by the name of Bruno Hopman. Hopman was then arrested on September 19, 1934, and one of the $20 gold certificates was found on him. Mm, okay. Looked as if the police had found their guy. Right. The next day, after a search of his home, more than $13,000 of the ransom money was found. Condon identified this man as Cemetery John. Oh, wow. So, okay. Now, you remember, he said he didn't get a good look at Cemetery John. Oh, yeah, he did. And now, all of a sudden, he's saying, yes, that's Cemetery John. But he did talk to him. He said he stayed in the shadows, and he didn't get a good look at his face. But they they had a conversation, so maybe his voice. Voice, possibly. Mm -hmm. Or maybe maybe Condon's just, uh, again, wanting to be the the star (laughs) of this case. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to know. His word at this point is not real credible because of all the inconsistencies. Right. details. We know there are those people who just like to insert themselves into the investigation. Absolutely. We've seen that in some of our cases that Mm -hmm. we've covered already. During the investigation of Hopman, he had said he had gotten the ransom money from a business associate 
Isidore Fish. He claimed that he had found that money after Fish had left some things with him before he made a return trip to Germany. Fish died while he was in Germany, and he never made it back. Hmm, how convenient for yeah. So Hoffman examined the items that he had left, and in there was a box with that money in it. Since Fish actually owed him some money from a previous deal, he just figured he would keep that cash and spend it. He didn't feel any need to. And it was confirmed that Fish actually did die? Yes. Okay. He did die. And of course, Hopman denied having any knowledge of the crime, but it should be noted he did have a history of burglary. Okay. A prior record. Unfortunately for Bruno Hopman, several other items found during a search of his home turned up other items pertinent to the crime. On a closet wall in his house was found Jaffsey's address and phone number written down. Okay. A notebook with a sketch similar to a building plan of a ladder, like the one found at the Lindbergh home, was also found. And was that ladder homemade? Yes, it was. Okay. So it's no surprise that Hopman was indicted for the extortion of $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh. And just two weeks later, he was also indicted for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. Sure. After further investigation, a plank of wood from Hopman's attic floor was found to exactly match wood used on the ladder that had been found broken in the Lindbergh yard that night. Oh, wow. At the beginning of 1935, on January 3rd, Hopman's trial began at the Hunterdon County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey. The New York Daily Mirror hired an attorney for Hopman in exchange for the rights to publish his story in their paper. Didn't that same thing happen in your episode about Mary Fagan? It did. Yeah. The um, one of the newspapers, I want to think I want to say it was the Atlanta Georgian. They hired an attorney for Jim Conley. You know, I'm really surprised that they allow that. And I wonder, I bet they don't now. No, I'm sure not. But it does seem like if it happened in two of those cases around the same time. Yeah. Within 30 years of each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's so maybe that was a common practice then. I guess I thought it was super suspicious in the other one. So Maybe it wasn't as, you know, uncommon Maybe as not. I thought. The prosecution was led by Attorney General of New Jersey, David Wylands. Some evidence that was produced by the prosecution was a handwriting analysis performed that compared Hopman's handwriting to the ransom note, his words and spelling and so forth. Okay. An expert witness testified that it matched, which was very condemning. Yeah. After all, perhaps a case could be made that he had found that ransom money left by his friend and was just spending that. Right. But that ransom note actually places him at the center of the crime. Yes. However, Hopman, he contended he was innocent and he claimed that he had endured beatings by the police during an interrogation and he was forced to submit handwriting samples that matched. So if they said, if he wrote the letter and they said, spell it this way, the way it was misspelled in the original letter but then if he wrote it and didn't spell the word the same which you would think would be an indication maybe he didn't write this letter they would say no go back and spell that word like this but i think it's hard to fake maybe not spelling i mean you can you know Mm -hmm. they could coerce that but actual handwriting that seems a little bit more difficult to uh i believe i read too that if he made a letter like if he crossed a t the certain way then they would say okay write it this way now it sounded like he was saying that they literally made him make it match. But that's what he says, That right? is what he says, okay. what his defense team says. Okay. Concerning that, pa- that plank from the attic floor, 
which you know they said it was indicated to be the ladder that was used. There were four oddly placed nail holes that lined up with the nail holes in his attic joist, mm. is what the prosecution presented as okay. evidence. Wow. The defense could not come up with a good explanation for why Condon's phone number and address would be written on the closet wall. Right. And that is... That's condemning. That's condemning. It is. Hopman said, well, he followed the case, and at some point when he was listening, he must have just written it down. Mm -hmm. But he still couldn't explain the phone number. Like, that wouldn't have been seen in the media. No. So, obviously, he had to have been in contact with Jaff C at some point. He contended that the drawing of the latter was not a sketch, but was the work of some child that was doodling. Mm, That sounds... Sounds a little suspicious. Yeah, it does. And one more thing that Hopman had done was okay. he qu- he quit his job two days after the ransom was paid, and he never went back to work for any other job after that, but continued to live his life just as comfortably as he had before. Right. But if he found that money... And that was his explanation. Well, I'm I'm still using this ransom money that I found. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I can, I can yeah. see that. Some things can be explained away. While the defense was not able to give satisfying answers for much of that damning evidence against mm-hmm. Bruno Hopman, they did insist that most of the evidence was circumstantial. And there was no witness, no fingerprints, or anything that actually placed Bruno at the scene of the crime. Everyone was anxious to get justice for this precious child, first and foremost his parents, the authorities, the media, and the public. Someone okay. needed to face the consequences yeah. of this tragic crime. So after five weeks of testimony, 11 hours of deliberation, and even with only circumstantial evidence, the jury returned a guilty verdict on February 13, 1935. Okay. And Hopman was sentenced to death by electric chair. Okay. As always, there's a series of appeals. Of course. His went to the Supreme Court in December of that year and was unsuccessful. So he was retried? Or they just denied? I think they denied the appeal. They just denied the appeal. There was a bid for clemency in March 1936. Although he was offered a last-minute deal to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession, he refused on April 3rd, 1936, Bruno Hopman was put to death in the electric chair, claiming his innocence until the very end. You know what I mean? So I'm like, well, we can do that. I want to know how often people are convicted based on circumstantial evidence. Or I heard an attorney say mm-hmm. she loves working with circumstantial Because she's like, sometimes science can get it wrong. Well, that's true. She's like, but circumstantial. I agree with that. Yeah. Because sometimes she- it's the way the science is interpreted. Exactly. And she's like, she feels more confident with overwhelming circumstantial evidence than she does sometimes with a little bit of... Interesting. Yeah. So I I thought that was interesting. After the sentence was carried out, there was some question about the legitimacy of the investigation and some accusations of possible witness tampering and planted evidence. Bruno Hopman's wife, she maintained his innocence, even up until her death in 1994. But my gosh, spouses usually do. I mean... She actually sued the state of New Jersey twice for unjust prosecution. One case was dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity. I mean, she probably really believed him, but that doesn't mean that he did... You know what I mean? Well, she also gave an alibi for him. So she said that, so when they first asked her on this particular night, was Mm -hmm. he with you? You know, she, you don't remember dates that don't pop, you know, Mm -hmm. after the fact. And she was like, well, I think he was with me. But later she got to 
pondering that, and she realized it was a Tuesday night, and he always called on her at her work at the bakery when she worked on Tuesday nights. She said he had to have been there with her, come to pick her I up. I mean, I feel like I would have looked into that when his life was on the line, on what day it was on. Yeah, she could have. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, if it she were could a- have told authorities that, and they just dismissed it. Yeah, that's true. Because she put it in this suit where she sued him. Okay. So maybe maybe they did dismiss her claims that he was with her. Yeah. Because there's Did been she a, say that they did that or she said she remembered? She said that she remembered later. Okay. It's just so hard because so often parents and spouses cannot believe that their little baby boy mm-hmm. or that their husband or that their wife is capable of, of doing this. Yeah. And so they'll give them an alibi. To protect them. Yeah. I mean, you see it all. I see it all the time. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you do. You see it all the time. And so we know. And I and I do believe that these parents and usually I think sometimes they know they're guilty. But I think a lot of the time they genuinely don't believe that they're capable of it. Right. That's true. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see absolutely what you're saying. Her other case that um, she brought against the state of New Jersey was dismissed because the statute of limitations had run out. If you think you've heard the end of this story... Nothing could be further from the truth. This story does live on. And there are so many theories out there about what really happened. Do you remember at the beginning when the authorities first arrived at the scene of the kidnapping? And the Mm -hmm. theory was there was more than one person who had committed the crime. Yes. So many people believe that even if Hopman was involved, he did not act alone, even though he was the only one convicted for it. Right. And many others sincerely believe that he's innocent and was framed. Okay. So let's look at some of those theories in detail. In a 2012 work written by a man named Robert Zorn, it is suggested that Hopman worked with two other German immigrant men to commit the crime. The author's father, Eugene Zorn, believed that as a teenager, he had overheard a conspiracy being discussed. Okay. So that's just one theory. New Jersey detective Ellis Parker was able to get a signed confession by former Trenton, New Jersey attorney Paul Wendell in 1936. But later, Wendell claimed that his confession was coerced and the case didn't hold up against him. Okay. Do you you know sometimes people come forward and admit to doing something they didn't do? Yes. I think I read that over 200 people confessed to committing that crime. That Isn't didn't do that it. just nuts? And it creates, it, it makes it hard to find the person who really did do yeah. it. Yeah. To focus on a real suspect when you're trying to weed out all of these as real suspects. Right. Mentally ill people who are confessing to crimes they didn't commit. Okay. So one of the more interesting theories mm-hmm. is that Charles Lindbergh himself was involved in the death of his son. Hmm. There's a couple of different theories about that. One of them is that he caused the death of his son by accident. During a prank gone wrong and then tried to cover it up by faking and kidnapping. Like we said, he was a known prankster and he had hidden that baby before in the closet. And so some think that he was hiding the baby again to try to scare, you know, the people in the house Mm -hmm. that the ladder broke. He dropped the baby. And then when he realized he was dead, he decided, oh, I got to cover this up. Okay. Some people think that happened. Other people think that Anne's sister Elizabeth killed the child because she was jealous that Charles had married Anne. Apparently, Charles had been maybe interested in her first uh-huh. and then ended up filing for Anne for instead and marrying her, and that Elizabeth did it in a fit of jealousy. 
Okay, you'd have to be one, one scorned lover to do something right? like that. Okay, well, let me tell you, let me read something to you. A book written by Noel Ben, who spent eight years of research on that crime. He's written a book called Lindbergh, The Crime. In that book, he suggests that Elizabeth did this in a fit of jealousy. Okay. And then when Charles discovered the baby, they covered it up to protect his sister-in-law. Which, why you would do that, I don't right. know. And so they spent two days strategizing and coming up with this hoax. Not just Charles, but then he worked with Hotman and a few other people to come up with this hoax to cover it up for Elizabeth, the sister of Anne. You remember the Morrows, that family was a rich, socially prominent yes. family in New Jersey. Yeah. And they were to be protected at all cost. And so that story would have caused them untold harm. And so they came up with the strategy to come at it like that. Yeah, but you know what? I might like, lo- I love my in laws, but if one of them killed my baby. I know. I mean, I don't think I would throw them to the wolves. And, and, and the mother, do <laughs> you don't think she would yeah. have? Like, that's what I'm thinking. However, you would, so this theory seems really far fetched, but you'd be amazed because the, it is said that one mm-hmm. of the people who did not believe Hoffman was guilty, or at least guilty by himself, was New Jersey Governor Harold Hoffman. And in this book, this guy claims that Hoffman discovered the true thing had happened, that it was Elizabeth and it was covered up by Charles and them, and that he reopened the case. He granted a stay of execution to Hoffman when he discovered that he wasn't the actual murderer. Really? But he couldn't, like, give sufficient proof about that. So it was a theory. It was a theory. And so they said it ruined his career. Oh, wow. Wow. And so the governor had been investigating it, and because it, he couldn't provide enough proof, it kind of you know, made him look like a kook with a conspiracy theory. Sure. But some people actually really believe that that was the the real thing that happened. And there probably is some things like that. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, so, like several little things. Yeah, that, there are a lot of details in this I'm case. Sure. And like I said, there's a lot of things that are conflicting, too. I mean, this episode would be three hours long if I covered all right. of that. I'm just trying to get the highlights. Yeah. So maybe if you read that whole book, there would be something yeah. that would convince you. Like, it sounds crazy. But like you said, yeah, probably if I read, it would probably get my wheels turning. Right. And again, every time I was researching one particular source... Mm-hmm. I would start to think, oh, this must be what really happened. And then I would read something opposite of that and think, oh, no, it couldn't happen because of this. I mean, I just found myself going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Because some of that stuff's very convincing. My mom is very into the Lindbergh baby um, Kate. I, like, I literally knew nothing about it. And I'm realizing as you're telling the story just how little I knew about it. But I, now I got to know what my mom thinks. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to hear what she thinks, too. All right. Now, closely related to that theory about either it being an accident that he covered up mm-hmm. or that his sister-in-law did it and he covered it up. There's another theory that he killed him intentionally. Hmm. So here's what many people may not know about Charles Lindbergh, the American hero. Okay. He was fascinated with social Darwinism. Okay. And eugenics, meaning okay. he believed in this purebred race and you don't want to pass on unhealthy genes right that the survival of the fittest and you have to keep your race pure so you can produce pure people a lot of people didn't know that about him then but then a lot of people did right and so according to that idea there were people who believed he was a nazi okay Uh, now he some people say he did have nazi 
sympathies. Right. Other people say he did not. But some of his quotes that he has been known to say would point to the fact that he did. I mean, a lot of people did. Coco Chanel, like you would be surprised at the people who had these Nazi leanings. Yeah. So he was definitely one of those. His Some quotes of his directly back that up. Wow. But other times he's made quotes that made you think that maybe in his later life he retracted some of those. Okay. He did make a comment that um, in some of his journals. Right. That he was like lamenting how the Japanese was treated by the Americans during World War II and that he compared it to how what the Germans had done to the Jews. Oh, wow. Okay. So that doesn't sound like he's sympathizing with them. No. But I think there is definitely enough evidence that in his earlier years, he He had had some Nazi leanings. Maybe they didn't know the brutality. You know what I mean? Like, it was just an idea. Well, I don't think anybody did at that point. Yeah. Like, it was just an idea until... You know what I mean? Until and then later happened. they were like, oh, my gosh. And like, when they realized the atrocity of it, yeah. like, this is what these beliefs have now. Ideas have consequences. Yeah. And I think when those ideas were taken to their natural end and people saw the consequences, they realized, oh, my goodness, this is right. atrocious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he definitely held those eugenics beliefs. Well, little Charlie was not a child without issues. Okay. So he had a disease similar to Ricketts that was like, um, it affected his bones and they weren't that strong. His parents placed him under sun lamps quite frequently. There's actually a picture of a sun lamp beside of his crib the night of the kidnapping. They gave him large doses of vitamin D supplements Okay, and just different things like that for his health. He also had overlapping toes on both feet called okay. hammer toes. That was actually one of the ways that Nurse Betty also confirmed it was his body. Okay. In addition to those ailments, his cranium seemed to be rather large for his small frame. Like maybe he had water on his brain or something like okay. that. And his cranial bones were still unfused completely at the age of 20 months. Oh, Which, wow. You know, that usually they close up. That, yeah. that little soft spot usually closes, closes up, up well, like within a year. And so some people think, you know, could Lindbergh have killed his own imperfect child in order to not spread unhealthy genes? I would hope not. Well, I would hope not either. But you would be amazed at the number of people who ascribe to that theory. Wow. A lot of people seem to buy that. Those who believe that theory Mm -hmm. find it suspicious that Charles seemed to take control of that investigation from the Mm get-go. They point out some strange behavior from his... Uh, such from him, such as finding the first ransom note in the window when he went back to the room by himself. Okay. Because it had not been spotted before he went in there by himself. No fingerprints were found in the room, not even the ones that you would expect to find, such as Anne and the nurse and Charles himself. But right. to me, that doesn't point to his guilt. I mean, any kidnapper might have you know, wiped the room of fingerprints. Right, exactly. I think they're just saying that he was in there and while they were searching, he had a chance to cover, like to get rid of fingerprints, wipe them down. On the evening of the kidnapping, Lindbergh missed a speaking engagement. The first time he missed a speaking engagement, which was really out of character for him. Okay. And he said he forgot about it. And so normally he wouldn't have been home, but that placed him in the home at, At at that time. And you know how he talked about how he tried to preserve the um, crime scene? Mm-hmm. A lot of people say that he did not, that he was acting like that, but he actually allowed that crime scene to be compromised 
by letting police and reporters walk all over, basically contaminate it. I mean, but I wonder if he took control of it until police got there and then gave them control of it. And then they... And maybe they bungled it. Do you know what I mean? That's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate question. Maybe he was just trying to like, you know, hey, let's don't touch the note. Don't touch anything. Let the cops because maybe he trusted. Another theory or another thing that people use to try to suggest that he was the one who did it is that after the baby's body was found and and determined that that was the baby, that he immediately had it cremated. And so Mm -hmm. now no further tests can be done on the body. Yeah, that's that is strange. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, I don't. I don't yeah. know. Unless there was just no physical, no more. Yeah. You know, some people that think that, well, he he had it cremated so it couldn't be tested. But I'm thinking if you found that child's body. Right. And it had been partly eaten by animals. Like, and decomposed. Yeah. How horrible. I think I would have been probably would have done that too. Yeah. I mean, who wants to bury a body that's that composed? I mean, that's just tragic. And he may have asked. He may have known there was n- there was no more physical evidence that could be gathered. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And along with, you know, conspiracy theories, you get some really crazy ones. And there's yeah. a, there's actually a lot of people have come forth claiming to be Charles Lindbergh, oh the baby. Char- Charles Lindbergh Jr. saying that he replaced the body with a different one that oh, was found. And people that he's really nuts. alive. And they were hiding him away because of his imperfections. Gosh. Yeah. People have come forward because, you know, people crazy. Do yes. That. So there are many things that make one suspicious of Lindbergh's possible involvement. Uh, if you look online, you can find articles and books and forums about all those different theories. Mm-hmm. Due to all the suspicions after the kidnapping, Lindbergh, you know, he found his hero status slipping a bit. Yeah, I'm sure. So now people love a good conspiracy. Oh, don't they? And there's no doubt in the minds of many people that he was involved. He and his wife fill in the weight of the kidnapping publicity, they moved their family to Europe in the years following Hopman's death sentence. Okay. So let's go back for just a minute. Let's revisit Hopman because okay. some people believe that he was genuinely innocent. So here are some of the things put forth in defense of that theory. In all of the bugged conversations between him and his wife, he never once said anything incriminating himself or any of the mail that he sent or received in prison, nothing was ever determined that he said that incriminated himself. But again, the absence of incrimination doesn't mean that you didn't do it. Right. And pe- I mean, unless you're a complete idiot, you're not going to write about it in your letters. Well, but there have been prisoners there who have, did that because they were complete but idiots. they were complete idiots. <laughs> Many people feel like Hopman was framed and that the prosecution and police used less than above board tactics during the investigation and the trial. There was speculation that the wood from that ladder that was supposedly proven to be from his attic didn't come from his attic. That was a key piece of evidence that helped convict him. The ladder had a lot of fingerprints, over 400, and none of them belonged to Hopman. But if he had wiped them off, right, and then everybody else came in and started touching it, his prints wouldn't be there. So I don't think that helps him. Isidore Fish? Mm Mm-hmm. The guy who supposedly had left that ransom yeah. money, he paid for his travel back to Germany with some of those ransom notes, which kind of backs up his story that he was at least, that at least Isidore Fish was involved at some point. Oh, I believe he was involved. I, I think, think they were in on it together. I do too. Yeah. But Hopman says 
the information about Isidore Fish, paying for that with those notes. He says that was suppressed in his trial by his own defense team. That's weird. Yeah. Many other pe- notable people have had reservations about the Hoffman, Hoffman being guilty. Okay. Now, I've already touched on one, which was Governor of New Jersey, uh, Harold Hoffman. Yes. Who later believed in that other theory about uh, Elizabeth the killing right. the baby. But also Amelia Earhart. Okay. Eleanor Roosevelt. And even the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, questioned mm. whether Hoffman was really guilty. Were they uh, on different political? Yes. Okay. So well, you know how the conspiracy theories get with that. Exactly. I mean, the the mud starts slinging between them. Yes. I mean, they will. Well, you know, it's like even in today's political climate, n- you know, Republicans think that anything the d- Democrats say yeah. is a lie. Yes. And vice versa. Vice versa. If Democrats point it toward the Republicans, they don't believe anything. They all want to blame the other side for being the conspiracy theorist. Right. And it's like the, they believe that you know it's not like they're it's like one dimensional they're just evil yeah like everything they do is just evil Evil. and so and i'm guilty of thinking that myself yeah i mean me too (laughs) uh so so yeah you have that going on i'm sure right well i have one more twist okay as far as theories go charles ended up First of all, he and his wife, they went on to have five more kids. Okay. You know, she was pregnant with the one when little Charles was taken. Yes. So she had that child and they ended up, so they had five more children together. They stayed married and everything. However, Charles ended up having affairs mm-hmm. with at least three other women in Germany that we know about. Bridget okay. Heisheimer, her sister, Marianna Heisheimer, Hesheimer, and his own private secretary, Valeska and no, no last name is given for her. He fathered seven children between the three of those ladies. Wow. Wow. Some people theorize that he was trying to spread his healthy genes. Hmm. Doing his part to keep the human race pure and strong. But I think that's kind of a reach. It, yeah. Probably more like a, likely he was just a uh, philanderer. Yeah. And just because he's a serial adulterer doesn't make him... Yeah, a murderer. And a again, murderer. like, and not just a murderer, but of your own child. Right, right. And there are so many men back in those, which I'm sure there are too. I mean, I'm, I know that it still exists, but mm-hmm. you think about these high profile people that, mm-hmm. you know, we just, there were, they, they had a really good side to them. I think of like Martin Luther King and JFK, mm-hmm. who, they were having affairs. Right. And they, lots of them. They had character flaws. Yeah. They were all, all of the people, even now, people that we look up to, people are still flawed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Franklin D. Roosevelt. I, and I think today, you know, obviously, that's not, that's frowned upon. But back then, I think they were almost like a part of the good old boys club where yeah. you could do that on the side. And uh, your buddies patted you on the back and the media, di- the media didn't call you out where today, like, you're going to get called out if you right. get called for that. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. So it doesn't mean, I mean, he probably sounds like he wasn't a great husband or, I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. I think it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a terrible thing to do. But again, I think the difference is. It sounds like there are all these theories about him, but there's not even any really great circumstantial evidence there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? With the other guy, there's a lot of like damning 
circumstantial evidence. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It I does. mean, there is some circumstantial evidence. Like, I guess he wasn't supposed to be that stuck out of my mind that he wasn't supposed to be there that night. The dad. Right. Um, He wasn't supposed to be there. And then the note that mm. he found it the second time. That's possibly he also could have been, um, you know, frantically looking for the child the first time he was in there and mm-hmm. just didn't see the note. Maybe. Um, and he didn't want his staff being questioned. That's weird. That is a little weird. Unless he just really, unless they were all like, we, you know, I know where they were at. But I do think somebody in that house had to have. Somebody had to have somebody had, had something to, to do with it. Yeah. Now, I think it could be possible mm-hmm. that he, I mean, I don't, I don't know. He could have been in on it with the two German guys. Right. I don't know. I mean, I. I think it's possible. I just don't think it's likely. Yeah, me either. But I, but I just wonder what the connection is. But I will tell you, there are a lot of people who do think he did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say I've heard that, but I have, <laughs> but I haven't heard much about this case. But I believe it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's high profile for a reason, mm-hmm. and probably a lot of people. You know, it's yeah. like the JFK thing. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, definitely. A lot of people have all these theories. And some of those theories seem crazy, but maybe when you hear more evidence, not so crazy. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, back to his family, his secret families. Okay. With those seven kids that he fathered, for whatever reason, whether mm-hmm. he was just cheating on his wife and being a bad husband or whether right. he was trying to spread healthy genes or whatever. Those children, they didn't know that their father was one of the most famous in the world during that time. Okay. They had no idea who he was. He would come and stay with them like two to three times a year. They knew him as they thought their dad's name was Caro Kent. And that C-A-R-E-U or, or K- Carrie, Caro, hmm. which sounds a lot like Clark Kent to yes, me. It does. So I'm like, what did he do? Superman. Give himself a Superman <laughs> moniker there. I'm not really sure if that was intentional or not, but I, I did catch that and thought it was funny with 12 kids i mean (laughs) yeah what's kind of a superman (laughs) but that secret was kept again the kids didn't even know years later one of the daughters of bridget her name was astrid she discovered pictures and love letters between her mom and charles and realized who it was she figured out that her dad was actually charles lundberg wow but she waited until her mother had passed away and until ann lindberg had passed away Wow. Before she revealed that. Wow. That was a kind thing to do. Yeah. So it wasn't until 2003 that that was outed. And DNA tests have confirmed that that claim is valid. I wonder if they financially benefited at all from. I don't know that they did. I'm sure by the time that all came out, anything he had left behind had gone to his other five children that were still living or whatever. And okay. But, I mean, it would be kind of crazy to find out your, your dad was... Yeah. It would have been a hard secret for me to keep. I know. Yeah. Well, this story raises more questions than it ever answers. Yeah. It has spurred a new law called the Lindbergh Law, which makes it a federal offense to kidnap a person and take them across state lines. Some people think that the baby was placed there in the woods after like sometime after okay i don't believe that because again it had been decomposing there in the woods and eaten so i don't think the baby had just been placed there okay i think that had been laying there for some time before it was found the two months or so before but some people do think that because they had searched that area prior to it and had not seen the baby but i mean you know when you're searching the woods you're not gonna see every inch of those you miss things 
searches sure. miss things. They do. There's definitely more to it, though. I, I definitely, yeah. I, I think that that guy, yeah. I think he had something to do with it, but I, there has to be more to it. Yeah. If you do a Google search of all these theories, you will find books devoted to just like one, one theory. theory. You'll find forums where people are discussing all the evidence or lack of evidence and the the uh, possible framing of this guy. You'll just find so much. You will find yourself down a deep hole. Yeah. There was no way to cover into it. Yeah, there was no way to cover it all in this episode or it would have been forever sure. long. I just wanted to throw out all of the, the facts and then all of the theories around those facts. Well, tell me what your theory is. I have gone back and forth. Like, I really cannot make up my mind. Part of me thinks maybe he was involved, okay. but I can't really wrap my mind around somebody having their own child killed. Yeah. I do think there's a possibility he could have been playing a prank that went wrong. But then, like you said earlier, like, but what about that ransom note? It'd be, he would be take a lot more time to cover that up yeah. than he actually had. Right. So I feel like that kind of disputes that theory. I really don't know. I'm interested to find out what our listeners think. Yes. Let's put up a poll. Yes. Do that. Okay. We'll put it up on Instagram, Facebook, pay our, all of our social media on Instagram yeah. and Facebook. We'll put the poll and uh, maybe did you say you could do it. on? I can Spotify. do it on Spotify as well. Great. So yeah, leave us a, yeah, let us know what you think. And if you have your own theory, uh, leave us a comment yeah, and let us comments. know what that is. And, and why, what your, what, what your reason for your theory is. And yes. we'd love to have your comments on that. Definitely. Oh, yeah. those were some hard times. They sure were. And luckily you don't have to go to Paris, France to listen to hard times and true crimes. But if you fly from the United States to any other country in the world and tell people to check out Hard Times and True Crimes, we'll make you an unofficial Lifetime member. And with that unofficial Lifetime membership, you'll be able to access and listen to Hard Times and True Crimes just like you could before. Except now, you'll have an unofficial Lifetime membership and the bragging rights of being the only one in a million Lifetime members. Till next time, goodbye.